You know, the horror of Good Friday is followed by the joy of Easter Sunday. And this is a good day for us, church. This is the Resurrection Sunday, the day that we celebrate new life, that life that we've sung about. And this day, and we would not be here if it were not for that day when Jesus rose again from the dead more than 2,000 years ago. And so this is a good day. Today we celebrate that the tomb is empty, that the throne is occupied, and that Jesus is alive. Amen? Yes, it's good news. I don't know if you've ever seen something that is remarkably unbelievable. You've told a story to someone and they're kind of looking at you and like, I'm not really sure I believe you. I remember reading an article in The Age the newspaper, The Age, it's a fairly credible newspaper. And I was reading this article about this, this guy in Egypt who woke up at his own funeral. I was like, come on, this can't be true. So I start to read the article and it talks about how this guy was in hospital. They pronounced him dead. And due to his particular faith, his Islamic faith view, there was a particular process of burial that needed to happen. And so they took his body home. But somehow the doctors hadn't signed the death certificate. And so they sent a doctor to go and check him so that she could sign the death certificate. When she got there, she found that the body was warm and that he was still alive. And she says to the mother, your son's alive. And she faints. And now she's got two people to care for. And I'm kind of reading the story and I'm like, is this true? I mean, is this, does, it, does this stuff really happen? And you've kind of, you're, I'm kind of like wrestling with this. I, I kind of trust the age. Would they publish something that's just kind of hearsay? I think we wrestle with things that we hear that we think, I'm not really sure this took place. And it seems to me that many Australians wrestle with that same problem when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. Mark McCrindle and his company, McCrindle Research, surveyed a whole bunch of Australians and they found, astonishingly, that 31% of Australians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That that surprised me when I read that figure. An additional 21% partially believed that. Not that Jesus partially rose from the dead, but they just partially believed that that was true. And then an additional 41% did not believe that truth at all. I don't know what happened to the remaining 7 or 8%. I don't know what they believe, but they, they just weren't included. But 41% of people did not believe that the resurrection happened at all. I wonder where you sit this morning about the good news that we celebrate here, that Jesus rose from the dead. Believe, kind of believe, not believe at all. Well, this morning I want to introduce you to a character who falls in that 41%. He does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But this guy is not an atheist. In fact, he's a disciple of Jesus. His name is Thomas. He's been nicknamed Doubting Thomas, which is a bit unfair because we remember him for his one mistake and not his enduring legacy of his pronouncement of Jesus as Lord and God. Thomas is a disciple of Jesus. He's devout, albeit maybe slightly pessimistic. There's an instance in John chapter 11 where Jesus has heard that his friend Lazarus has died. And he says to his disciples, we need to travel back to Judea. And they say, Master, we can't go there. You're a wanted man there. People are looking for you. They're trying to kill you. And he says, nevertheless, we must go. And Thomas stands up and he says, all right, Let's go with him that we may die with him. And so Thomas is deeply devoted to Jesus, but also maybe slightly pessimistic at the same time. 
He's the one who, when Jesus says, I'm returning to the Father, the Father's house has many rooms. And if I go, I will prepare a way for you. And Thomas is like, Lord, if we don't know where you're going, how do we know the way? Jesus says to him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who comes to the Father comes through me. And so we meet Thomas, doubting Thomas, believing Thomas, here in that passage that Arnaldo just read to us, John chapter 20, verse 24. This is the account of Jesus' resurrection through the eyes of his disciple, John. And this is what he says. Chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas... One of the 12 disciples, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I don't know if you've ever missed a really significant, important meeting. Thomas missed the meeting uh, late last year. Um, and Brian's given me permission to share this story. And some of you will have read it on our blog. But late last year, Brian organized to have a meeting with the state premier's office. He was trying to get Mike Baird, couldn't quite get the top, but got the finance and infrastructure minister anyway. And uh, he'd been preparing for this meeting for weeks. He'd prepared a pitch about how the city doesn't have viable spaces for churches to meet in. Everything's out of our price range and church serves the community and here's our vision and can you help us do this? And he didn't have a suit. And so Ellen said, you, Brian, you need a suit. So he went off and he bought two suits and he was prepared. He went into the city early and he's going over his pitch and he's praying that God would bring favor to this meeting. And then he walks into the building and the receptionist's like, I'm sorry, you're two hours late. Mr. Meeting. Now, just so you know, if you want to know what it looks like to fail forward, to fail well, to not be defined by your failures, just read Brian's blog on our, on our website. It's a beautiful story of how failure does not define us. But Brian missed the meeting. He missed the meeting. It's an awkward meeting to miss. You know, my brother's best mate, Damo, um, he was in my brother's bridal party for his wedding. Missed the engagement party altogether. Just didn't show up. We're like ringing him straight to voicemail, like, dude, where are you? The engagement party's on. He was surfing or something, just missed the engagement party. Well, Thomas here misses the meeting. I don't know what it was. Maybe he didn't get the Facebook notification. He didn't have notifications on his phone turned on. Or he was, you know, didn't get the essay. Whatever it was, he misses the meeting. And so the next time they're all hanging out, eight days later, Thomas is there and they say to him, we've seen the Lord. I mean, just put yourself there for a second. Here is Thomas. He's grieving. His friend, the person on whom he has placed all of his hope, was dead. And then he goes and hangs out with his best friends, and they're all rejoicing and celebrating. So here is Thomas grieving and mourning, and his friends are celebrating. Thomas, we've seen the Lord. The problem for Thomas was that he had seen the Roman soldiers drive those nails through his Savior's wrists. Thomas had seen them hoist Jesus up on that cross. He had seen with his own eyes Jesus wrestling for air. He had seen Jesus die of asphyxiation. He had seen the Roman soldier pierce Jesus' side with a spear that 
pierced open his pericardium, the heart sack, and out of that flowed blood and water. He had seen the evidence that Jesus had truly died. He had seen them take his lifeless body off the cross and carry it to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and lay it there. He'd seen that. But he hadn't seen Jesus alive like the rest of his friends. And so Thomas has some very strong and specific requests that might move him from unbelief to belief. He says, unless I see the marks in his hands that the nail caused, unless I see the, the, the wound on his side from that spear, literally it reads, I will never, be, you cannot convince me unless I see, unless I touch for myself. But you know, Thomas isn't the only one who wrestled with belief in the resurrection. The other disciples wrestled with that as well. In Matthew 28, it says that when Jesus went to the mountain in Galilee, where he had arranged to meet the disciples after his resurrection, the 12 and a whole bunch of other disciples went with them up to this mountain. And, and it says when they saw him, some worshipped, but some doubted. Even after they had seen the risen Jesus, they doubted. Or in Luke chapter 24, verse 11 the very first witnesses to the resurrection were women, which is interesting. If you're going to make a story up, you don't have women as your key witness in a culture that doesn't validate a woman's testimony. But that's another sermon for another day. These women go to the tomb and they see that the stone has been rolled away. The body is not there. An angel appears to them. And the angel says, why are you looking for the, dead among, the, the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And they return back to the disciples, the apostles, the remaining 11. They say, the body is gone. Jesus has risen. And it says in Luke, Luke 24, 11, that the disciples, when they heard this, they thought to themselves, this is just an idle tale. And they did not believe. So this is not unique to Thomas. This is not just Thomas's problem that he doesn't believe in the resurrection. In fact, all of Greek and Jewish culture in the first century had no category for a resurrection like this. The Greeks believed their worldview, their understanding of life was that the spiritual part of you was good. The material, the physical part of you was corrupt. And so when you died, you would release yourself of the material corruption and enjoy the spiritual goodness. They had no category for a resurrection that was bodily. The Jews at least had a category of a resurrection they believed in a resurrection at the end of history, this cosmic event that would happen when all people would be raised, where God would make all things new, where he would put his king on the throne. The Jews had no category for a bodily resurrection in the middle of history and just one person rising to new life. They had no category for a dying king, a dying Messiah. And so no one, no one in the first century is ready and expectant and waiting for a resurrection. They all come to it with a quota of doubt and unbelief. But here's the deal. Many, many thousands of both Greeks and Jews in the first century instantly and en masse shifted their worldview and believed something. And that, for that to happen... There has to have been some compelling evidence to move people from doubt, from unbelief to belief. And for Thomas, he says, unless I see. 
Unless I see, I won't believe. When I was studying at university, I was a, a swimming teacher, casual work, used to coach swimming. And most of the time I would coach the, the older kids in their squads. But every now and then when they were short on teachers, they, they would throw me in the little kids pool and I'd have to teach the little kids how to swim. And I remember often the kids would get there and they'd turn to their parents and say, Mommy, I don't want to get in the pool with that man. And they were scared of me for some reason. And it was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a task. I, I struggled with it, but I developed a bit of a technique of developing water familiarity with these kids. And the, the trick was, I would say to them, you need to put your faces in the pool with your goggles on and look down, because if you look there, you might find Nemo. He's swimming in the pool. And so I'd try and trick these kids into believing that Nemo was in the pool to get their faces in the water, and they'd pull their heads up, and, I saw Nemo, Mummy, I saw Nemo in the pool. And you know, they'd get out, Mummy, Mummy, I saw Nemo. And then, oh, yeah, good one. Kids are easy to trick. They're imaginative. They will believe all sorts. Like I tell Piper that, that Nemo's in the roof just to wash her hair, you know, get her head to tilt back. They, they'll believe anything, right? And sometimes we think that first century adults were no different to kids. They're more gullible than us. They're less scientific. They're more open to believing things that really aren't true that would never have happened. But it's just not true. Thomas did not believe He's not gullible. He's not naive. He's got no category for a risen king, a risen Messiah. And so if you find yourself with questions or doubts over the resurrection of Jesus, then you know what? You're in pretty good company because all of the disciples were there at one point. You know, I'm kind of glad that Thomas said this. I'm kind of glad that John recorded this event of Thomas doubting the resurrection and the reason I'm glad is that because we are people just like the disciples who have our own or the same questions and objections. We desire the same evidence to move us from doubt to belief. And so I'm glad it's there because we need to know that this is real, not just something that makes us feel good. In the end, anything worth believing is worth questioning. Anything worth believing is worth questioning but the question is for Thomas at least are these requests are these demands legit like is this is this is it okay for Thomas to say I demand to see because Thomas has already seen so much Thomas was in the boat when Jesus woke up in the middle of a storm and told the wind and the waves to stop be still Thomas was there when Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish, prayed over them, multiplied that to feed 5,000 people. Thomas was there when Jesus was walking through a town and they passed through the middle of a funeral procession and Jesus walked up to the coffin and commanded the dead body of a son to come back to life. And he gave him to a widow and they rejoiced. Like Thomas was there when Jesus wept with Mary and Martha over the death of their brother Lazarus and then commanded the dead body to come out of the grave and Lazarus comes out like a mummy covered in like almost zombie like Thomas was there he saw it he saw it all hasn't he seen enough 
And so maybe there's more going on in Thomas's heart than he just requires empirical hard evidence. Maybe, maybe Thomas is just really broken and devastated that the person that he'd placed all of his hope in was dead. Like, maybe there's not just an intellectual objection, but, but a heart objection for Thomas. My guess is for many of you here this morning who wrestle with belief, is that it's not just simply give me the facts, but there's also a hard objection for you. Maybe it's that there are people who carry the name of Jesus that have badly bruised and wounded you in the past. Maybe it's that you've had a horrible experience with the church, and that is true for so many people. And it's not just an intellectual objection, but there's this this mix of emotions that causes you to step back and think, I I just don't know if I can believe this. I think Thomas is there. And so he says, unless I see, unless I see, I will not believe. Well, eight days later, he gets just that. In verse 26, this is what it says. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. This time he got the SMS, he was there. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. You notice how Jesus deals with Thomas here? Lovingly, gently, He doesn't come and say, oh, you have little faith, Thomas. How could you disbelieve this? Gently moves Thomas from doubt to belief. And friends, Jesus wants to do the same with you this morning. He wants to move you towards belief. Thomas sees. He has an encounter with the risen Jesus. He has an experience of Christ. And his response is to fall to his knees and cry out, my Lord and my God. This isn't, this isn't an OMG moment here, right? This isn't a, a deep personal expression of worship for Thomas. My God. I'm going to suggest to you that that really is the only fitting response to a risen king. If the resurrection is real, that is the only fitting response, that we would cry out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. There is no point in worshipping a dead martyr. And friends, that's the significant difference between Jesus and the founder of every other worldview and faith. Because the rest of them are dead and Jesus is alive. My Lord and my God. You know, C.S. Lewis said that Christianity cannot be moderately true. He says, and I quote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says to the church there, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. It's pointless. It's empty. It's fruitless. Stop pretending. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, then this is a waste of time. Church is nothing more than a lame, habit, a lame hobby and at worst is manipulative. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, your faith is futile. 
Ah, but if he has, the resurrection changes everything. But when it comes to us, I think the problem is that we think, well, what about me? How am I supposed to believe in the risen? Like, is Jesus going to come and appear to me and show me the scars and show me the... Like, how am I supposed to believe in this risen Jesus? And Jesus' answer to that is profoundly countercultural for us. See, we think that seeing is believing. But Jesus says, actually, hearing is believing. This is what he says in chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus said to him, to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And then John, who writes this, puts this little editorial comment here. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, the book that he's writing. But the ones that I have recorded, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Have you ever thought to yourself, wouldn't it be nice to just swap places with the disciples for a bit? You know, just a day so I could be there and, and see with my own eyes. Then, then I, my faith would be purer. Then I would believe. Jesus says here, you know what, your faith is not inferior because you believe based on what you hear and not what you see. In fact, there were many people who saw and did not believe. And so there has to be something else. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so what is the grounds of our belief? The grounds of our belief is hearing. Hearing. An eyewitness account. See John's little editorial note there. He says, I want, I want to let you know why I've recorded this story. I want to let you know why I've recorded all of the stories from Jesus' birth to the calming of the storm to the feeding of the 5,000 to the widow's son to Lazarus coming out. I want to tell you why I've recorded all of that, including his death and resurrection in this account of Thomas. is so that you might read it and hear it and believe. See, John is not suggesting that we ought to believe in Jesus on the basis of his own personal subjective experience of God. What he's suggesting is that we believe based on something that we can all look at and test and see. He's claiming that these events actually took place in history. This is not some version of Chinese whispers. This is an historical event. Friends, Christianity is the only faith that opens itself up to the scrutiny of history and says, don't, don't just believe this because someone had a vision and tells you to believe in their vision. Believe this because this actually happened. Christianity is not blind faith. Believing in something that oh, well, we deep down believe really isn't true. This is not unicorns and fairy tales and... This is history. Like you can open the Bible and read of rulers and places and then you can go back and find historical textbooks where they've done archaeological digs that have found the references to those rulers and places. God's way of making faith available to everyone 
is not saying come and believe on the basis of this subjective experience, but come and believe on the basis of this objective evidence of the resurrection that happened in history. Jesus really did rise again from the dead. But the question I have is, well, is that reasonable? Is it reasonable for us to believe something that we have never seen with our own eyes, something that we've only heard of with our ears? Is it reasonable to live by faith and not by sight? And most people that I have spoken to, many of my friends will say, if I don't see it, I can't believe it. But the truth is we believe in lots of things that we've never seen. Most of you believe in your great-great-grandparents, even though you've never seen them, you've never shaken hands, you've never met them for yourself, but you believe in them. Most of you believe in the historical figure, Julius Caesar, and read about his wars and his conquests and his empire. Though you've never seen him, you weren't there, you've never shaken his hand, you've never met him. But we believe in these things. Most of you will get onto an aeroplane and fly Even though you've never seen the engineer's design, you've never seen the pilot's certificate, you've never seen whether or not he's qualified or she's qualified to fly a plane, you've never seen them put the fuel or enough fuel into the plane to make sure that it gets to the destination. Like We live by faith all the time. We don't just believe in things that we see with our eyes. And I suggest to you this morning that the reason that you believe in Jesus is the very same reason that you believe in another historical figure like Julius Caesar because there is historical evidence that suggests he was a real person that walked the face of this planet. And there is historical evidence that suggests that Jesus didn't just die and was buried in a tomb, but he rose again from the dead. But I think we've still got another problem. And that problem is that belief in Jesus is not a neutral belief. You see, when you believe in your great-great-grandparents or when you believe in Julius Caesar, that doesn't change your worldview. That doesn't change your life. You don't have to change anything when you believe those things. Belief in Jesus is not a neutral belief. Belief in Jesus and his resurrection requires what Thomas does. My Lord, oh my God, it requires worship. And so it's a costly belief for us. Can we believe that this account is true? As I read this story in the Age newspaper, can I trust that this account is true? I want to suggest to you this morning, friends, that there is nothing more historically reliable than the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. There's no other ancient document that that is more attested to than the New Testament that tells us of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, Christianity is not blind faith. It's belief in something that really took place. You know, I really believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. I'm not gullible. I'm not naive. I studied a science degree at university. My dad is a PhD in statistics and a research scientist for his job. We come from a family that is logical, analytical. And I truly believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And the the way that we do that is we see through the eyes of eyewitnesses who were there, who saw it for themselves. 
and have recorded those things that we might hear them, that we might read them and believe. It's the same way that anyone gets sentenced to prison these days. An eyewitness comes along and says, I saw them do this. The judge wasn't there. He didn't see. But on the basis of an eyewitness, he sends that person to prison. I used to work for an insurance company in liability and claims recovery for car accidents. And often there was a dispute in liability. One person would say one thing. My customer would say another thing. I'd be arguing with another insurer about who's liable for the damages. And if I had an eyewitness, I would always win. Go to court, I've got an eyewitness. Hands down, the judge would always side with the person who had an eyewitness. Friends, we believe because John was there. Thomas was there and they saw the risen Jesus and they've written it down so that we might hear and believe in things that really happened. Verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, belief is not merely just intellectual assent to a number of propositional truths. Belief changes us. See, God is the author of life. He created all of us in his image and likeness. He created life in us. He created us to live forever and to live in relationship with him. That's the picture we see in the garden. But the curse of our rejection and rebellion against God is death, that life would end, not just physically, but spiritually, that we would be separated from the life-giving presence of our Creator. But Jesus came and He lived the life that we could not live, the perfect life, and He died the death that we should have died in our place for our sins. And when He did that, He gave us Life, new life, life everlasting, true life in spiritual connection with our Father. We've been reconciled to our Creator. Jesus comes and He gives us life. John says you can have that life by faith, by believing in Jesus, by trusting that what He has done is sufficient and good. Faith in Jesus leads to new life. In Romans 6 verse 4, it says this, We were buried therefore with him, in, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you have faith in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you have new life. New life. The resurrection changes everything, friends. The resurrection changes your past. The resurrection changes your present. And the resurrection changes your future. The resurrection changes your past because the fact that Jesus has risen again from the dead means that your sin has been dealt with. If Jesus can come good with the promise of coming back to life, surely he can deal with your sin by dying on the cross. The resurrection guarantees that your sin has been paid for, that it has been wiped clean. Your past is dealt with. So friends, those of you who are here this morning who are wrestling with carrying the burden of your own guilt and your own shame, you need to know this morning that the resurrection means that that has been dealt with. 
that you don't carry that anymore, that Jesus took that upon himself and died on the cross and rose again to new life, declaring that that is finished. It has been dealt with. And there may be many here this morning who are still walking in guilt and shame over past sin. And the resurrection means that Jesus guarantees that your sin is gone, that your sin is dealt with. And so maybe it's time to take that and give that to Christ, come to the foot of the cross and have faith that Jesus truly has paid for your sins and given you a fresh start. The resurrection changes your past, but the resurrection also changes your present. See, in Ephesians 1.19, the Apostle Paul says that the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, that same power is at work in you who believe. You see, the resurrection is not just something we celebrate one day a year. It is something that we live in light of every single day, in light of new resurrection power. Power to say yes to Jesus and no to sin. Power for transformation. You see, in and of ourselves, we have no power to change. Self-improvement only works so far. But the power of the resurrection makes us new people. The power of the resurrection gives us power to live a different life every day. The resurrection changes your present. But the resurrection also changes your future. Jesus is described as the first fruits of the resurrection. What does that mean? In the same way that as, a, as an orchard begins to blossom, the first fruit is there as an indication of what the rest of the harvest will look like. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, that those who believe in Him will experience the same thing as He ex- has experienced, that they will be taken and, and, and be given resurrected bodies in the new life, in the new age to come, for all eternity. Friends, the resurrection changes your future. You have a certain hope. That, that story that Jesus told Thomas and the disciples, where I'm going, I'm going to a house and I'm going to prepare many rooms for you. Heaven. That is your hope and future and the resurrection guarantees that. Jesus saying, this is a demonstration of what I have done, you will do. You will be raised again for all eternity, experiencing what God originally intended in His creation that sin messed up. Friends, the resurrection changes everything. It changes your past. It changes your present. It changes your future. The fact that Jesus is alive means you have life. And life comes by believing in Jesus. Not intellectual assent to propositions, but heart, worship and transformation. And my question for you this morning is, do you have life? Have you found the freedom that comes in believing in the risen Jesus? I don't know what percentage you fall into. In that McCrindle research breakup, the 31%, the 21%, the 41%, you fully believe. Friends, if that's you, if you fully believe, then walk in light of the resurrection. Stop living as if Jesus was dead. He's alive. You have new life. If you're in that 21% that's kind of not sure, we would love to give you a copy of John's Gospel. 
because he wrote it that you might hear and believe. If you're in that 41%, we'd love to give you a copy of that gospel that you might read and hear and believe and find life in Jesus' name. Because friends, Jesus has risen and that changes everything, everything. And my hope is it changes your life. And Jesus' hope is that you would move from doubt and unbelief to belief and then worship. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to worship our risen King and Savior. We're going to do that in two ways. The band's going to come out and lead us as we worship Jesus in song. And we're also going to invite you to worship and remember that Good Friday. We've got four stations around this room with bread and grape juice. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The grape juice represents His blood. And we invite you as you reflect on Good Fridays, you reflect on the resurrection that you come and you dip that bread in the grape juice and you eat it, remembering Christ died for my sin and He rose again for my justification. And friends, maybe you're here this morning and and you're carrying a burden of sin or guilt or shame. Maybe there are circumstances in your life that are out of your control that you would like someone to pray for you. We've got teams of people up the back who would love to pray for. Maybe you want to move from unbelief to belief this morning. They would love to pray for you. They would love to give you a copy of John's Gospel so you might read for yourself. But as we worship, as we respond to the risen Jesus, let's do that now as we sing. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'm going to invite you, church, to stand. And we're going to respond to this great God who is alive. Amen? Let's stand. Let me pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus has risen from the grave. We thank you that that changes our past, that our sin is dealt with, that we have new life, fresh power, resurrection power to live by every day. And that in Christ, we have a certain promised future hope. And so God, we worship you now. Jesus, we worship you, our risen King, our Saviour, our Redeemer, that you might reconcile us and bring us to new life. We worship you in the strong and powerful name of our Saviour Jesus and those who agreed said, Amen.